In the spring of 1837, Joseph Story was despondent. The Supreme Court had just concluded a session, and in a letter to a friend, he lamented, I am the last of the old race of judges. I stand their solitary representative with a pained heart and a subdued confidence. He considered resigning, but ended up staying on the court for another eight years. What caused Justice Story such angst? The mid-1830s was a time of transition at the Supreme Court. Justices were coming and going, and some, including Justice Story, feared the new direction the court was taking. One case, with the dissent written by Story, represents the shift that was to come for the court, from the great Chief Justice John Marshall's 34-year stewardship to the new Jacksonian era. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And this week on DIST, we're looking at Charles River Bridge versus Warren Bridge. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Joseph Story is one of the most influential legal minds in our nation's history. Born in Marblehead, Massachusetts, a small fishing town just north of Boston, Joseph was the oldest of 11 children. His father, Elisha Story, was a physician and a member of Samuel Adams' revolutionary group, the Sons of Liberty. Elisha Story played the role of one of the Native Americans in the Boston Tea Party, and he fought in several battles in the American Revolution. Story's mother, Mehetable Pedrick, came from a wealthy merchant family, and she encouraged her son's intellectual curiosity from a young age. She purportedly once said, don't you dare not to be a great man. I think it's safe to say Story more than lived up to that expectation. He went on to graduate second in his class at Harvard at age 19 and spent his early legal career in private practice before turning to politics. Story served as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives and the U.S. House of Representatives before President James Madison nominated him to the Supreme Court in 1811. He was just 32 years old. Makes a girl feel underaccomplished. Story would serve on the court for three decades and write his famous Commentaries on the Constitution, a history of the American Revolution and the Constitution, which is widely cited in legal briefs and court opinions to this day. He was a close ally of Chief Justice John Marshall, a man who hardly needs an introduction. Though not the first Chief Justice, John Marshall was perhaps the greatest Chief Justice. He was nominated to the bench by John Adams just weeks before his cousin Thomas Jefferson would take office in 1801. Adams later remarked, his gift to John Marshall to the people of the United States was the proudest act of his life. During three decades as Chief Justice, Marshall transformed the court from being an institution that lacked energy, weight, and dignity, as the first Chief Justice, John Jay, put it, into an equal branch of government. He wrote landmark decisions, such as Marbury versus Madison, which recognized the power of the court to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional. He also wrote the famous McCulloch versus Maryland, which interpreted the Necessary and Proper Clause in a way that strengthened the power of the federal government and which upheld Congress's power to establish a national bank unfettered by state interference. Marshall set the practice of issuing a majority opinion instead of seriatim opinions, which are opinions issued separately by each justice. This made it easier for people to understand what the justices had ruled. And rule they did. The court issued more than a thousand opinions during his tenure, with about half offered personally by Marshall. We talked with a biographer about John Marshall's influence on the young Joseph Story. I'm Richard Brookheiser. I'm a journalist and a historian, biographer, 
I'm a senior editor of National Review, and I've written a number of books on the founders, including John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court. The age gap between Marshall and Story is 24 years, so it, it is a generation. And a Story comes on the court uh, in, in 18... Uh, 11, he's, he's a Madison appointee. I almost want to say he falls in love with John Marshall. He warms to his personality. And he also responds to his mind. I mean, Story is a brilliant man, brilliant legal mind. But he, he just believes uh, for the rest of his own life and after, after Marshall dies, he would be the first to say Marshall... Marshall had a better mind than mine. He just responded to something capacious and strong and powerful in Marshall's reasoning. So you'd have to say that the story is Marshall's most important convert on the Supreme Court bench. When Story wrote his commentaries on the Constitution, which he hoped would become an American version of Blackstone's commentaries on the law of England, he wrote a beautiful dedication to none other than his friend John Marshall. And he dedicates it to Marshall, and he sends it to Marshall. Marshall is still alive. Uh, and, uh, and he tells Marshall the most important thing he can say to him. He says, a disciple of Washington still lives, meaning Marshall himself. And this is the highest compliment you could possibly pay John Marshall, who adored George Washington, had served under him in the Revolutionary War, always thought of himself as, as Washington's soldier, Washington's loyal follower. And his own loyal follower, Joseph Story, says, yeah, you did it. You did it, Chief. Marshall was the last of the old Federalist Party. Here's more from Richard. John Marshall is the last Federalist left standing. Uh, the party of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams uh, wrecks and vanishes, uh, beginning with the election of 1800, and then finally it's done with the War of 1812. But Marshall keeps going on, and he keeps upholding their principles, and he writes them into American law via his decisions. Marshall was also able to establish a sense of camaraderie among the justices. Well, the famous, the famous story about Marshall is uh, that uh, the, the justices by custom could only have wine at their dinners. This would be after they'd spent the day hearing cases. They'd go back to their boarding house to talk about the cases, and they'd talk about them over dinner. And the custom was they could only have wine at dinner if it were raining. And I assume that would be to cheer themselves up. So uh, Chief Justice Marshall would always ask one of his fellow justices, often Justice Story, when he gets on the court, Brother Story, will you look out the window and tell us what the weather is? And Story would say, well, the sun is going down in a clear sky. And Marshall would say, our jurisdiction is so vast that by the law of chances, it must be raining somewhere. So wine was always served at the Marshall Court. I'm reminded of Sandra Day O'Connor, who used to cajole the justices into eating lunch together after each conference. She believed that it was more difficult to stay mad and easier to find common ground when breaking bread. Perhaps Marshall thought the same could be said of drinking wine. Story and Marshall would serve on the court together for 24 years until Marshall's death on July 6, 1835. And suddenly, there was a lot of change happening at the court. But first, we need to back up a little bit. 
1828 and the election of Andrew Jackson. His inaugural celebration at the White House is legendary. Alcohol flowed freely, riots broke out, men in muddy boots stomped all over the furniture. It sounds more like a frat party than a Washington soiree. Joseph Story attended and said, the reign of King Mob is triumphant. Here's historian Tim Hubner. I am Timothy Hubner. I'm the Sternberg Professor of History at Rhodes College, and I also serve as the Associate Provost there. Jackson is elected president in 1828. He represents something new. A, a, a very different party system is starting to, shape, to is starting to sort of take uh, shape at the time. Politics are more uh, a, a, a more democratic enterprise. The franchise is um, expanding at this moment. And Jackson, from his perspective, sort of represents the will of the people. So Jackson, while he's in office, is implementing a range of policies that he thinks are supported by the people, but he runs into strong opposition from what turns out to be a sort of anti-Jackson movement that takes on the label of the Whig Party. And uh, this is probably most evident in Jackson's war on the Second Bank of the United States where Jackson vetoes the effort to recharter that bank. And that's where Tawney comes in. The infamous Roger Tawney was a politician from Maryland. And at the time, he served as Jackson's attorney general. He later became a Supreme Court justice, but we'll talk more about that later. Back to Tim. Uh, Because Tawney is the attorney general at the time of this bank war in the 1830s and actually writes the bank veto message that is issued by President uh, Jackson. Uh, Not only that, Jackson subsequently moves him over from the position of attorney general to secretary of the treasury in order to carry out the sort of aftermath of the veto of the bank. And that is the, the sort of moving of federal money out of the bank of the United States. Here's Richard Brookheiser. Two of Jackson's Treasury secretaries wouldn't go along with it. Um, And, you know, Jackson had to promote one to Secretary of State and he had to fire the other one. You're fired. Finally, Roger Tawney, uh, who's the attorney general, he volunteers to step in and remove the federal government's deposits from the second bank, which, you know, really mortally wounds the bank. And so the supporters of the bank, the Whig Party, uh, are furious with Tawney. He's Jackson's hatchet man, a loyal Jacksonian foot soldier. Tawney is put into the position of Secretary of the Treasury in that he was willing to carry out that action. But he was nominated on a recess appointment. And when the Senate actually comes back into session, they are not willing to accept this idea that Tawney is going to be Secretary of the Treasury. So the Senate rejected Tawney's nomination, making him the first cabinet-level official to be rejected by the Senate. What a burn. Here's more from Tim. Jackson's veto of the Second Bank of the United States was itself an effort on their part to undermine the Supreme Court's ruling in a case called um, McCullough v. Maryland from 1819 that had um, upheld not only the sort of constitutionality of the bank, but was 
an example of what Marshall had been building up ever since 1803 in Marbury, and that is the power of judicial review. The bank veto challenges that power explicitly when it basically says that the court has no more power to interpret the U.S. Constitution than the president has. Jackson had other problems with the court. Jackson had had uh, run-ins with the U.S. Supreme Court previously. Uh, We saw that in the Cherokee cases, Worcester versus Georgia. He famously said, of course, probably said, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. But then Jackson got a windfall. Three Supreme Court vacancies in less than a year. He had already placed two justices on the court, and now he had the opportunity to reshape the court with three more appointees. First, Justice William Johnson died in August of 1834. Nominated by Thomas Jefferson, Johnson had served for 30 years. He's often called the first dissenter due to the frequency with which he penned dissents in this early period of the court. In January 1835, Jackson nominated James Moore Wayne, a Georgia Democrat who served in Congress, to replace Johnson. And the Senate confirmed him just days later. That same week, Justice Gabriel Duval retired at age 82. He had been ill for a while and was almost completely deaf at this point. Appointed by James Madison, Duval has been called the most insignificant of all Supreme Court justices for his lack of written opinions. Nevertheless, Duval had provided a reliable vote for Chief Justice John Marshall's majority, dissenting just three times in 24 years on the bench. So his retirement was a blow to those who sided with Marshall. And who did Andrew Jackson pick to fill this vacancy? None other than his hatchet man and loyal foot soldier. Here's Tim. Jackson nominates Tawney. And the Senate, uh, viewing Tawney as a purely political actor, as someone of a political hack who's willing to carry out Jackson's every wish, uh, is not willing to accept uh, Tawney's nomination. Tawney was described at the time as an undistinguished party man. One paper declared the pure ermine of the Supreme Court is sullied by the appointment of that political hack. So the Senate rejected him. And in his place, Jackson picked Philip Pendleton Barber, a judge on the Eastern District of Virginia, who earlier served as Speaker of the House and briefly campaigned to be Jackson's running mate. But that wasn't the end of the road for old Roger Tawney. Here's Tim. Now, of course, what happens is subsequently, not too much later, in 1835, Chief Justice John Marshall, the almost sainted figure by that point, dies. And Jackson, still smarting over the fact that the Senate had been unwilling to sign off on Tawney's nomination as an associate justice, now nominates him for the chief justiceship to take Marshall's place. And what's happened in the intervening months is that a few Whig senators have uh, died. The sort of composition of the Senate has shifted just enough that Tawney's nomination the second time not for the associate position, but for the chief, is able to be successful. But of course, all of this happening, as always, in the midst of the rough and sort of tumble of politics. You have to imagine how pleased he must have been to uh, to get Tawny through as chief justice, ultimately. Yes. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think he was very, very pleased. When John Marshall died, some had hoped that Joseph Story would be elevated to Chief Justice. 
Josiah Quincy, the president of Harvard, remarked, The Supreme Court may it be raised one story higher. Sadly, Chief Justice was not a role story would fill. Instead, we got the infamous Chief Justice Taney. He's best known today for his 1857 decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford, holding that African-Americans were not citizens of the United States, entitled to the rights and privileges of the Constitution, a ruling that was fundamentally flawed and hastened the outbreak of the Civil War. Legend has it the Liberty Bell cracked upon John Marshall's death. But perhaps it was Tawny's confirmation that did in the old symbol of our nation. So when Tawny was appointed, uh, Senator Daniel Webster apparently said, Story thinks the Supreme Court is gone, and I think so too. And I have to wonder if the way people viewed Tawny at the time, was it like the equivalent of if Donald Trump had, you know, picked Rudy Giuliani to be on the Supreme Court? You know, someone who's so closely tied to uh, to the president? Um, probably not that closely tied, but I think there is a, a, a sort of parallel there. I mean, Tawny had practiced law back in Maryland, but he mostly was a sort of political figure, um, you know, known for his close association with President Jackson, his role in Jackson's uh, cabinet, and his role in these two sort of controversies, uh, which I mentioned, the writing of the bank veto and his willingness subsequently to withdraw federal money from the bank. So, yeah, I mean, he was seen really as more of a political figure than any sort of legal figure. And, I mean, I'll only add, Tawney, and this was typical of 19th century Supreme Court justices, Tawney had no experience as a judge. He'd never been a judge before. Now, that was also true of Chief Justice Marshall. We sometimes overlook that fact. So that wasn't, um, you know, uh, so extraordinary. Uh, but that helps us to understand why he was seen more of as a political figure um, than anything else. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget today how how different Supreme Court justices and their pedigrees are than they used to be. They very much used to come from the political world. And today we sort of expect them to come from you know, almost these judicial monasteries, you know, from the academy, from the appeals courts, uh, but not, you know, not to debase themselves with lowly politics. Here's more from Tim about Tawny and the new era he ushered in. He seems to represent a, a sort of Jacksonian style of politics. He represents this new Jacksonian political party, the sort of Democratic Party. He represents the will of the people in a sort of negative way from the perspective of Marshall and Story. And, you know, from their perspective, I mean, obviously Marshall's gone, but from the point of view of folks like Story and Daniel Webster, you know, they were worried that Tawney serving on the court would basically undermine all of the work that had been done by Chief Justice Marshall over a period of 34 years. And so, yeah, Story and Tawney, especially in those early years, especially in cases like the Charles River Bridge case, are, are definitely rivals. You might even call them diametrically opposed foes. That brings us to the Charles River Bridge case a decade-long legal battle between two bridge companies in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But first, we have to back up a bit 
1785, when the Massachusetts legislature granted a charter to Charles River Bridge Company to build and operate a bridge between Boston and Charlestown. The company would collect tolls for 40 years and then turn it over to the state. The bridge proprietors sold shares to raise funds to build the bridge. The legislature extended the Charles River Bridge toll privilege for an additional 30 years in 1792 when it granted a charter to build another bridge between Boston and Cambridge. Fast forward to 1828, the legislature granted yet another charter, this time to the Warren Bridge Company, to build a bridge that would be only 90 yards away from the Charles River Bridge on one side. The new Warren Bridge Company would collect tolls to recoup construction costs for up to six years, then turn the bridge over to the state. At that point, it would become a free bridge. Needless to say, the folks at the Charles River Bridge were not thrilled about the prospect of a free bridge just yards away. At this point, the Charles River Bridge had approximately 3,000 foot passengers and 750 vehicles per day. And while the bridge cost an estimated $46,000 to build and operate, its tolls had generated around $1.2 million. So the company did what you might expect. It sued to stop construction by the competition, arguing that the charter from the legislature gave it an implied exclusive franchise. In its view, the charter for the Warren Bridge impaired its own earlier charter in violation of the contract clause of the U.S. Constitution. For listeners who are not familiar with this little-known provision, you can find it in Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution. It says... No state shall make any law impairing the obligation of contracts. So what does impairing the obligation of contracts mean? Well, the early Supreme Court read the clause broadly as a muscular restraint on state authority, upholding the sanctity of contracts and encouraging the risk of a market economy. That's how legal historian James Ely Jr. described it. For example, in Dartmouth College versus Woodward in 1819, the court held that the New Hampshire legislature violated the contract clause when it altered Dartmouth's charter to allow the governor of New Hampshire to appoint the school's trustees, thus turning a privately funded school into a public one. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that opinion, which was joined by Joseph Story. Back to the Charles River Bridge case. A Massachusetts state court dismissed the complaint. But undeterred, the company pursued its case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is where things start to get complicated. The Supreme Court first heard oral argument in March 1831, but didn't issue a decision. Then, two years later, the justices agreed to rehear the case. But it was delayed again until 1837. This means that the case was heard both by the Marshall Court and the Taney Court. The newly constituted Jacksonian-dominated Taney Court heard the second oral argument in the Charles River Bridge case. By this time, its competitor, Warren Bridge, had been built, paid off, and turned over to the state. And the Charles River Bridge had closed. The court heard arguments over the course of seven days in January, and it announced its decision on February 14, 1837. Talk about a great Valentine's Day. The court ruled against Charles River Bridge over the forceful protest of Joseph Story. The 1837 term, and the Charles River Bridge case in particular, marked the end of the old Federalist era. The court shifted away from Marshall and Story's view, which favored strong federal power and robust protections for property rights, and it gave way to the new populist Jacksonian view, which opposed purported elitist monopolies and sought to invigorate states' rights. Writing his very first majority opinion, 
Chief Justice Taney acknowledged that the legislature's charter for the Charles River Bridge was a contract within the meaning of the Constitution, but he construed it narrowly. Since the charter did not expressly grant an exclusive right to operate a bridge over the river, Taney concluded that the charter for the Warren Bridge did not impair the contract. Taney compared the charter from the Massachusetts legislature to a royal grant, which must be interpreted in favor of the king and against the grantee. Since we don't have recordings of the justices from all the way back in the 1830s, we asked a couple colleagues to play the role of justices. Here's our Chief Justice Roger Taney. My name is David Dearson. I am an attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, I joined the staff in September of 2018. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the role of Justice Tawney. I know that he's from Maryland. Actually, I was born in Maryland, although I didn't spend much time there. But, you know, I, I, I looked at a couple of pictures of him and he's sort of got this hawk-like appearance to me. And so I'm trying to channel like a, a bird of prey here. In the case of a king whose grants chiefly flow from his royal grace and bounty, the rule is, crown grants have at all times been construed most favorably for the king, where a fair doubt exists as to the real meaning of the instrument. Can they, when holding their corporate existence under this law and deriving their franchise altogether from it, add to the privileges expressed in their charter an implied agreement which is in direct conflict with a portion of the law from which they derive their corporate existence? Can the legislature be presumed to have taken upon themselves an implied obligation contrary to its own acts? Tawney warned that recognizing an exclusive right would have dire consequences, thus putting his populist ideals over considerations like the text of the contracts clause. No one will question that the interests of the great body of the people of the state would, in this instance, be affected by the surrender of this great line of travel to a single corporation, with the right to exact toll and exclude competition for 70 years. While the rights of private property are sacredly guarded, we must not forget that the community also have rights and that the happiness and well-being of every citizen depends on their faithful preservation. The whole community are interested in this inquiry, and they have a right to require that the power of promoting their comfort and convenience, and of advancing the public prosperity, shall not be construed to have been surrendered or diminished by the state unless it shall appear by plain words that it was intended to be done. The object and end of all government is to promote the happiness and prosperity of the community. To sum it up. In grants by the public, nothing passes by implication. Here's Tim Hubner. It's really the first major case that the Tawny Court hears. And part of the symbolic difference of the Tawny Court and the Marshall Court is the fact that Tawny, when he walks into the Court's chambers, which that time held in the basement of the U.S. Capitol building, he walks in wearing long trousers. He's wearing long pants in the same way that most men wear now, right? Uh, but at the time, that was a stark difference because Marshall, who was really a product of the late 18th century, had worn sort of knee-length sort of breeches of that 18th century style. 
And so you have a Mutani who seems to represent a more democratic, egalitarian impulse as a man of the people. Tani's opinion in the Charles River Bridge case is basically the embodiment of his populist, long-pants-wearing egalitarianism. And we see that in what Tawny does in this case, where he basically argues that there's no such thing as an implied exclusive right. He argues that instead the people have rights, or as he phrases it, the community also have rights. And he juxtaposes those rights to those of property, setting the interest of the public in opposition to the rights of individual property owners. So Tawny there is basically arguing in support of a more instrumental view of the law, of a more sort of dynamic understanding of property. And in this sense, then, Tawny sounds a lot like Andrew Jackson in the bank war, uh, because uh, Jackson views the national bank as a monopoly. And that's the same sort of rhetoric or that's the same sort of tone um, that we get from Roger Tawney when he shoots down the idea of implied exclusive rights. Now, Story, on the other hand, represents this older view. And it is arguably the view of Chief Justice Marshall. And the Marshall Court had been extremely protective of the rights of property owners and of the notion of contracts. Joseph Story wrote a 57-page dissent, and he found Tawny's arguments preposterous. Here's our Joseph Story. Uh, hi, my name is Damian Schiff, and I'm a senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. It's a great honor to be able to play uh, Justice Story. I'd like to think, um, uh, rather than trying to get into, into character, I've never been out of character, but it it was particularly helpful for me in reading a number of articles on his jurisprudence and to see how things have changed over the last 150 years. It is a principle of common sense as well as of law that when a thing is granted, whatever is necessary to its enjoyment is granted also. It is not presumed that the king means to make a void grant, and therefore, if it admits of two constructions, that shall be followed which will secure its validity and operation. Story just didn't buy Tani's argument that a monopoly had to be expressed rather than implied. He pointed out that the legislature's act granting the charter for the Charles River Bridge Company had left many things implied. The legislature's act nowhere in terms in any of the enacting clauses confers any authority upon the corporation thus created to build any such bridge nor does it state in what particular place the bridge shall commence or terminate on either side of the river, except by inference and implication from the preamble. I mention this as an irresistible proof that the court must, in the construction of this very act of incorporation, resort to the common principles of interpretation and imply and presume things which the legislature has not expressly declared. Story also disagreed with Tawny's analogy to a royal grant. This was a contract, he said, not anything like the rules for interpreting the terms of a donation from the king to his people. It is confessedly a case of contract and not of bounty, a case of contract for valuable consideration, for objects of public utility, to encourage enterprise, to advance the public convenience, and to secure a just remuneration 
for large outlays of private capital. I stand upon the old law in resisting any such encroachments upon the rights and liberties of the citizens secured by public grants. I will not consent to shake their title deeds by any speculative niceties or novelties. Responding to Tawny's concern that ruling for the Charles River Bridge Company would inhibit progress, Story wrote, I can conceive of no sure plan to arrest all public improvements founded on private capital and enterprise than to make the outlay of that capital uncertain and questionable, both as to security and as to productiveness. No man will hazard his capital in any enterprise in which, if there be a loss, it must be borne exclusively by himself. And if there be success, he has not the slightest security of enjoying the rewards of that success for a single moment. Though the Charles River Bridge would end up being very profitable, Story pointed out that the project was actually quite a gamble. At that time... The Constitution of the United States was not only not then in existence, but it was not then even dreamed of. The Union of the States was crumbling into ruins under the old Confederation. Agriculture, manufacturers, and commerce were at their lowest ebb. I would even now put it to the common sense of every man whether if the Constitution of the United States had not been adopted, the charter would have been worth a 40 years purchase of the tolls. And on top of that, the bridge was the first of its kind, the first constructed in New England over navigable tidewaters so near the sea. It was believed that the bridge would scarcely stand a single severe winter. If Charles River Bridge had been carried away during the first or second season after its erection, it is far from being certain that up to this moment another bridge upon such an arm of the sea would ever have been erected in Massachusetts. I say these things which are of public notoriety to repel the notion that the reward was more than adequate to the perils. The answer is obvious. The grant carries with it an exclusive franchise to a reasonable distance on the river, so that the ordinary travel to the bridge shall not be diverted by any new bridge to the injury or ruin of the franchise. In Story's view, the Warren Bridge Charter impaired the obligation of the state's contract with the Charles River Bridge. So it was utterly void. Here's Tim Hubner again. You know, these are two very different visions of property and property rights. Although I would argue that in in some ways, you know, both Tawny and Story share a sort of vision of an expanding capitalistic economic order. Uh, they just have very different visions about how to achieve that. Story thinks we can achieve it by trying to protect the individual property rights of owners. You know, Tawny thinks that we have to think about the public interest and that we have to have a more dynamic understanding of, of sort of property in that sense. Dynamic here, I think, is a euphemism because a right dependent on the community's best interest is no right at all. The loss of his mentor and ally, John Marshall, clearly had an impact on Joseph's story. Richard Brookheiser describes another descent from that term in Briscoe versus Bank of Kentucky. And he, he, says, he says in his decision that he knows that his late chief, Marshall, could have argued against this with supreme eloquence. He can't. You know, he can't bring Marshall's eloquence to it. And he quotes a line from the Aeneid 
uh, by Virgil uh, describing Aeneas's journey to the underworld in the middle of the poem, and he meets his own dead father in the, in the underworld uh, of the ancient world. Uh, Aeneas is made to say, I leave, I leave these, these offerings in vain uh, to you, to his father. And, and Story quotes this in Latin, you know, quoting, quoting from the Aeneid. So, so that shows you where his mind is at. Uh, his father is in the underworld. Uh, the upper world has changed. And uh, he, Joseph Story, can't do anything about it except dissent. Story wrote to another justice that he considered resigning. Here's Richard again. Story, at first, he, he thinks of quitting. Uh, there, there are these big constitutional cases, and he's the lone dissenter, and, you know, woe is me and woe is the court. But he stays on until the end of his life, uh, and I think that's largely because he loves the law. You know, he loves his job. He loves the law. Uh, he loves thinking about it. He loves writing about it. He loves arguing about it if he has to. And where better can you do that uh, than on the bench of the Supreme Court? So Story will stay at his post. This was the first major jurisprudential shift on the court, from the Marshall to the Taney Court. And in fact, it was part of a broader cultural shift, the passing of the founding generation, the OGG, the original greatest generation. Among some, there was a feeling of anxiety about how our fledgling republic would survive without the guidance of the men who had devised our constitution in our country. Here's more from Richard. Some people feel that anxiety. Story certainly feels it. I mean, he's uh, he regrets Marshall's passing, and he, he realizes that the court uh, has changed with Marshall's departure. Uh, there's a young uh, politician in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, who, who, who gives a speech in 1838, which, you know, no one pays any attention to. We only know it now because Lincoln went on to become Abraham Lincoln. But uh, he gives this speech to the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois, and it's preoccupied with the, the death and the disappearance of the founding generation. Joseph's story embodied this anxiety, that the old race of judges was under siege by the Jacksonian barbarians at the gates, as one scholar describes it. But this would be just the first of many jurisprudential shifts on the court. Here's Tim Hubner. There is another shift that happens during the Civil War era. It's not of the same sort. It's not that that people are starting to lament, you know, the old order. It's an eagerness to to sort of um, overturn that old order that we see with President Lincoln, uh, because Lincoln and his party in the 1860s are, you know, redrawing the the circuits in order to change the sort of composition of the U.S. Supreme Court. They're adding an extra justice in 1863 to increase the size of the court from nine to ten. And, and of course, um, you know, Tawney dies uh, finally in 1864, and there's a new chief justice, Sam P. Chase. So all of that um, constitutes a sort of uh, reshaping of the court. Similarly, I would argue we see a fundamental reshaping of the court under Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s and the 1940s, 
But again, in both of these instances, you know, there's no pining away for what is lost. I mean, these are are sort of moments of constitutional transformation, and there's an eagerness to bring about that shift. You can often hear that anxiety in the way people talk about the court today, acting like each nomination is a disaster or a godsend. But as Timothy points out, maybe some of that anxiety is unwarranted. From Richard Nixon up through George H.W. Bush. And there's a lot of anxiety during that period, you know, that what had been built up is, is going to be torn down. And yet, as this frequently happens, these, you know, revolutions that we sometimes fear or sometimes start to anticipate if we're on the opposite side of that, don't, don't ever turn out to be quite as, as sort of revolutionary as we might think. There is, one might argue, an essential continuity to American constitutional history simply because it's a constitutional system and structure that's based on precedent. And so built into, baked into the system is the idea that, yes, things change, but they'll never change too much. Justices come and go, and the world keeps turning. As a wise man once said, in Washington, there are no permanent victories or defeats, just permanent battles. For the Supreme Court, there are no permanent majorities. In other words, everyone gets a turn writing a dissent. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Somebody give this guy a pen. <laughs> yeah, or a quill. <laughs> That's right. Interested in 19th century Supreme Court history. <laughs> well, I'm a Supreme Court nerd, and I'm also a history nerd, so it's really a confluence of my. Uh, That's great. My favorite uh, nerdy extracurriculars. Thanks for listening to. Oops, got really excited. Thanks, thanks, guys. <laughs> And, and he writes home that, I love his laugh. Talking about Marshall, I love his laugh. It's too hearty for an intriguer. Y'all okay. ready for this? <laughs> oh, not that again. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful looking thing, but I guess as a bell, it, it didn't do its job so well. And finally it does crack. But uh, the Marshall story is charming, but untrue. Mahutable. I had to like look up on Google how to pronounce Joseph Story's mom's name. Mahutable? Mahutable? Mahutable. It's a wonder that name didn't stick around for generations to come. It's biblical, apparently, uh, mm. but I had never heard of it before Joseph Story's mom. These are like words that bring out a lot of like bad pronunciation. <laughs> It makes me sound like, anyway. Um. <laughs> I'm really excited about the banjo music. Ding, 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 ding.